I was this past week, I was in Colorado just visiting one of my heroes, um, visiting uh, Bill Fisk, my junior college head coach who's battling cancer and going through a tough time. And it was a great time just visiting. And he has a, he has a bunch of horses. He has a ranch, 60-acre ranch, maybe an hour outside of Denver. And uh, something happened on the way. I was supposed to fly back yesterday. There was a, there was a hailstorm and light, thunder and lightning. They canceled the flights. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm like, what's going on? So I was thinking, how's this going to work out? And uh, I'm grateful. We got the last flight out and flew into Ontario last night. So grateful. Evidently, God wanted this message preached today here at Evergreen SUV. Otherwise, one of our pastors would have been up here preaching a great message as well. But here we are. But um, today we're talking about the, the intercession of Christ, Christ's prayer life. And we are going through our Look to Christ series, and this is just, we only have two more messages. This is eight, and then next week will be nine, and then we'll be journeying through the Gospel of John again for a season. And uh, just so grateful to be here, and uh, just incredible, because uh, today we're going to speak about Jesus' greatest ministry. Have you ever thought about that? What is Jesus' greatest ministry to his people? And Romans 5.10, you can turn there if you want. I'll read it for us. Romans 5.10 says this. And I heard this preach one time, and I was just kind of like caught me off guard a little bit. Romans 5.10 says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross reconciled us to the Father, gave us peace with the Father. No longer enemies, but brothers and sisters, friends of God. But then comma, my NSB version, comma, much more. What is this much more ministry? There's something greater than Jesus dying on the cross? What could be greater? Right? And it says this, um, much more Having been reconciled, having made, been at peace with God, we shall be saved by his life. By his life, there's a greater, much more ministry that Jesus does for us. And, I, and I'm journeying, okay, what has Jesus been doing since he's been back into heaven? Have you guys thought about that? We, we, every year, Christmas time, Good, uh, good Friday, we, know, we study about his death. And then he was buried, and on the first day, on Sunday, he was resurrected. That's Easter. It's already built into the calendar. We're going to preach Christ's resurrection at least once a year, but we're going to be, obviously, we preach it more than once a year. But what, what has Jesus been actually doing as he sits at the right hand of God? Let's turn to uh, Hebrews 7.25, okay? <laughs> Hebrews in the back of the Bible. This is just a stunning. As I was studying this, this is taking me to a whole other level of what has Jesus been doing? I'll read it for us. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is described as our high priest. And it says, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God for over 2,000 years, always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean, Pastor? That means Jesus is, has been constantly been praying for us since he's ascended back into heaven. And this is the much more ministry that Romans, that Paul talks about. So today we're going to talk about Jesus' greatest ministry. He's praying for you and me, my, my brothers and sisters. And today we're going to be in John chapter 17. And because what is Jesus praying for? What has he been praying for? John 17, 
is a mammoth chapter. I mean, John 17 is really, really a, could be a, a preaching series in itself. But John 17 gives us a glimpse into what Jesus is praying for. This is the most detailed account of Jesus praying in the Bible. And a little bit of context of John 17. John 17 is a very emotional time for the disciples and for Jesus. Jesus just had, just got done washing the feet of the disciples. Jesus just had, uh, just finished up with the Last Supper. He instituted communion with the, with the disciples, and there was a big shakeup. The disciples' expectations absolutely, bam, shattered to the ground. If any of them thought that Jesus was going to take over and get rid of the Romans and they're going to help Jesus rule uh, Israel, all that was shattered because Jesus says this, by the way, one of you guys is going to betray me. By the way, they're going to come arrest me. And by the way, I'm going to die on die. And so the disciples were like, what? And by the way, I'm leaving you guys too. And the disciples must have been thinking, whoa, hold on, Jesus. We left a, a profitable fishing business to be with you. I used to have a tax collecting business to be with you. I left a lot. I left family and friends to be with you. And now are you telling me you're leaving me? What? So this whole prayer is about encouraging the disciples. The 11 faithful disciples, the true 11 true disciples. The setting is they're on their way to the kid, uh, crossing the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested and betrayed. And so Jesus is praying out loud. And, he, and, he, and, and the purpose, like I said, was to comfort his disciples hours before his crucifixion. I mean, you can, can't you imagine the intensity right there with the disciples and for Christ himself? And right here, John 17, we get a very intimate, very intimate look at this father-son relationship, this father-son dynamic, all right, in the Trinity. Jesus is speaking. We get to just be like a fly in the wall and hear what they talk about. So let me just pray. Let me just pray before we uh, get to read the scriptures here. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you graciously had your prayer recorded here in John 17. Thank you that we're able to see your heart, what's on your heart, and what you pray for, what you've been praying for us constantly since ascending to the right hand of God. So, Father God, I just pray that this gives us greater confidence in what you have done and what your son is praying for. Help us to look to you more with greater confidence, knowing that you're praying for us, knowing that you are acting as our high priest, Lord Jesus, that you are interceding for us nonstop. So God, we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's rise. We're going to be out of John chapter 17. I will be reading out of the NASB version, the New American Standard Bible. And we're just going to, I'm just going to read all 26 verses. And this is a prayer. For the disciples and for you and me. Let's, let's read Jesus' prayer, John 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you, ha- which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, Jesus prays for the disciples. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. What a statement. And yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition or the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, and even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves Selves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, now he prays for all of us, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, that, they, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know, that they know that you sent me and loved them and even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, if you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Finishing up here. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. And will make it known. So that, so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. By your spirit, I pray your word will be preached. I pray you will be glorified through this. I pray your saints will be edified and built up to trust in you more. That we will have a clear picture of you as we look to you. Thank you, Jesus. May you be glorified. I pray, Jesus, that you will be preached faithfully through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Coach Fisk, who's Coach Fisk? He's a man who gave me a chance. He's one of the pillars of my life, one of my heroes. In a transitional time in my life where I was graduating of high school, the, where, what, where should I go? I went to a junior college. I went to Mount Sac Junior College. 
And I would tell Coach Fist and Tona, his wife, who are dear brothers and sisters, they love the Lord, praise God. I said, you know what? Next to following Christ, next to uh, asking my wife to marry me, this might be the top three or five decision of my life to go to Mount Sac. It was a massive decision. And, um, you know, in Colorado, like we talked about, it's about, a, you know, where he lives is about a mile high, about 6,000 feet above sea level. So the weather gets crazy. Like I talked about, there was hailstorm in, in, in the summer, right? There was thunder and lightning. It was crazy. And, you know, you're way up there. And, but as I was talking to Coach Fisk, I mean, this is just a few days with him. You know, we're try, I'm trying to, like, honor him. At the same time, I'm trying to learn and get more inspiration for this coach. What would you impart to me? What would you impart to me? Right, as you're going, you know, potentially, and I might not see you for a while, what would you impart to me? He goes, you know, Rocky, it's about relationships. It's about communicating well. I mean, it's simple, basic. And we only could cover really the mountain peaks of the man. There's no way I could learn everything about him. And we've had three good years together, but that's what he wanted to impart to me. And today, John 17, like I said, it's a mammoth chapter. This, this is, you could do a whole preaching ser uh, series on John 17 alone. So today, my hope is just to cover the mountain peaks of this chapter, all right, to just give us a clearer picture of what Christ's intercessory life is like. What is he praying for, in that sense? What has he been praying for? And this is what I want to cover with us today. And the first Part of John 17, just to give you a quick over, flyover, 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, he's basically praying for himself. And Jesus is basically about the Father's glory. It's all about the Father's glory. And then from 6 to 19, now he pr prays specifically for the 11 disciples. And then from 20 to 26, then he prays, includes all of us in this prayer. And by looking at John 17, you can see what's on the heart of Christ. Do you want to know what's in the heart and mind of Christ? John 17 tells you what's on his heart because this is what he's been doing this whole time in heaven. You'll know what's on your heart, what's important to you, but what you pray about. Brothers and sisters, what do you pray about daily? What captures your heart so that you're constantly praying about these things? This is what, who you are. This is what you treasure. We're going to see right now in John 17 this intimate look between this conversation between the Father and Son, what's on Jesus' heart. And what Jesus prays for, I'm just going to give you ahead of time, and then we'll keep reviewing it, but these four things, or these four mountain peaks that I, I could see out of these things, we're going to cover the second half of John 17 from 11 uh, to about 26. Okay, Jesus is praying for our protection, first of all. Your note taker, write this down, but it'll be on behind me soon uh, as we go through the points. Jesus is praying for our sanctification, number two. Number three, Jesus is praying for our unification. Number four, and lastly, he's praying for our glorification. These are the main mountain peaks of what Jesus is praying for us. So for the first point, Jesus is praying for our protection. John 17, 11 says this, I am no longer in the world. Jesus is anticipating, I'm leaving. I'm no longer going to be so, shoulder to shoulder with you anymore, disciples. And he's, so he's praying and covering. And, it says, and yet they themselves are in the world. The 11 disciples, they're going to stay in the world. They're not going to go up with Jesus immediately. They have work to do. And I come to you. And then here's the petition. Holy Father, Keep them in your name. Keep them, in another sense, protect them in your name. 
In that sense, how does this idea of keeping the original language has this idea of restraint. Like any good parent here or any soon-to-be parents would restrain things from your children because they're not ready to handle certain things. They with, you withhold some things, right? So you, it's through rules or just not letting them have things. And what does Jesus and is, what does Jesus pray for our protection for? What does a father protect us from? Number one, it's eternal security. If you're in Christ, you are eternally secure in Christ. All right, you're a son or daughter of Christ. Number two, he protects us from tests we're not ready for, trials or temptations we're not ready for yet, things that will destroy us or crush our faith. He protects us from these things. So number one here, he protects our eternal security. He says, in your name, and what backs that up? It's the Father's name. What does that mean? That means the Father's character, the Father's nature. God is faithful. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. This is the God that's protecting you and me, our salvation. In John 10, we just talked about the good shepherd before. It says this, that Jesus holds us in his hand and no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. And then Jesus ramps it up even more. The father holds us in his hand and no one can take us out of his hand. Nobody. Nobody. So our eternity is absolutely secure. Philippians 1.6, I want to read this for us. Philippians 1.6 is so an incredibly encouraging uh, passage. It says this, for I am confident, Paul writes, I am confident. I know for a fact, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, the Father who chose us, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ. Meaning, the Father will ensure that salvation is absolutely carried out. Isn't that a joyful thing to know that, brothers and sisters? As verse 13, Jesus prays for our joy. How can you not have joy knowing that our eternity is secure, that you're part of a heavenly family, that you're part of forever? That's what we rest on. Does that not bring you joy? I mean, as a football coach, I had joy when we won, but when we lost, I wasn't very happy. As a pro coach or pro player, you're, you're joyful as long as you're on the team or roster, but from week to week or year to year, you don't know if you're going to be on. That's a fearful thing. Christian life is not like that. We're absolutely secure because the Father holds us. Well, how much more assurance do we need than that? It's not even about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. That's the key. Now, now right here at verse 12, I want to read this here for us. While I was with them, Jesus is speaking, I was keeping them in your name. He was protecting us, the disciples as well, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. All right, so you say, Rocky, well, uh, what about Judas, right? This is talking about Judas clearly, the son of destruction. Judas was never part of God's family. And what's absolutely sobering about Judas is this. Judas hung out with Jesus for three years. Listened to every morsel of teaching that Jesus taught. Saw every miracle that Jesus did. Perhaps even preached. Perhaps even performed miracles himself. But G Judas was never part of the family. He was never part of Jesus' body. 
And what's startling and sobering for us is this. How many of us have grown up in the church? I'm a first-generation Christian. Concerns I have for my own children is that they've known nothing but a Christian dad, Christian mother, Christian church, Christian friends, Christian school, all that. How many of us love what Christianity and the community of the Christian faith gives us, but we don't love Christ? This was Judas. Is that not a stark, chilling reminder and chilling warning for all of us that do we evaluate constantly, do I love Christ? Judas was never part of the family, so he was never in God's secured hold. Okay? Now, I believe as verse 14, we go to verse 14, I, I think the emphasis of the protection shifts. Let me read this for us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. It goes from opposition now, the world's opposition, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus said in John 15, he, he, he says something like this, where the slave is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they surely will persecute you. So Jesus is preparing for protection of the disciples. I say, hey, you're going to get opposition you guys are missionaries where you live, whether abroad or locally. So missionaries, brothers and sisters, you will face opposition. The world is against you. This is, when it says the world, is the world system. The world system, satanic system, is against you and me. And so Jesus, I believe, starts going to this area of protection over from tests we are not ready for. Tests or trials that we're not ready for. Verse 15, it says this, I do not ask you to take them, out, take them out of the world, but to keep them or protect them from the evil one, from Satan himself. Let me give you a cross-reference here. We're going to be going from, I think 1 Corinthians 10 gives us a great illustration of what, what Jesus is talking about here in terms of protection. We know this verse, many of us, is a very famous verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So remember, this idea of keep in the original language means to restrain, okay, to hold back. All right, so let, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I think it'll be behind me. No temptation or trial or test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. This is the key. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted. God restrains. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able able to handle, but with a temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This idea of temptation is a test or trial. God doesn't allow you to go through a test or trial that you're not ready to handle. All right, In essence, a test or trial that will destroy your faith. Let me give you a picture of what happened in the garden. What happened to Jesus in the garden? He was, he was betrayed. Judas comes, betrays him with a kiss, and the troops came and take Jesus. Now, have you ever found it very interesting? What about the 11 disciples? Not one of them was arrested? Think about that. How did that happen? And I've been to this garden of Gethsemane. It's not like a, a forested area where you can hide in all kinds of different places. It's, it's kind of open. So you run. They didn't even catch one. How's that? It's a miracle. God did not allow any of the 11 disciples to be arrested because they were not ready for that. 
Do you remember what happened to Peter with a, a simple slave girl? Question him, don't you know him? They go, I don't know him. What do you think they would have, what happened to them under the pressure of being arrested and saying, hey, you're going to be murdered, just like your Lord if you don't, if you don't denounce Christ? Right? I mean, I, 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 as I thought about that, whoa, the Lord restrained them from going through that. They would be arrested later, and at later time, they'd be ready to handle that trial or that test. This is a way where Jesus is praying, protect my sheep from trials or tests that they're not ready to. Things that will uh, to cause them to walk away from the faith. It's incredible. As you just see how this is happening. So Jesus is praying for our protection. Our eternal security, which produces incredible joy, and then our protection from tests and trials we're not ready for. And here's a side note, brothers and sisters, if you are going through a trial right now, just know that the Father believes that you're able to handle it. Your maturity level in Christ allows you to handle it. You may not handle it perfectly, but it's not going to destroy your faith. Just know this, that the Father is allowing you to go through some things right now to grow your faith. It's not to destroy your faith, but to grow, elevate your faith from one level to another. Trust the Father. Trust Jesus' prayer. Let's go to point number two. Jesus is praying for our protection. And number two, Jesus is praying for our sanctification. What is sanctification? We use this term often. Okay, think in your mind, your heart. What, what, what would you, how would you define sanctification? How would you describe it to a younger a Christian or one of your children or your grandchildren? How would you describe what sanctification is? In, in a nutshell, I'd say becoming more like Christ. Right? Holiness, being set apart. Right? You want to become more like Christ. That's what sanctification is. And Jesus is praying for our sanctification. Let's turn to, back to John 17, verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. There's a direct correlation of how much Bible you know in your heart that leads to your sanctification. If you do not know the Bible very well, you do not know Christ very well. Therefore, you, not, you cannot copy him very well. Right? The Bible says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. Right? How, it's not even by head knowledge, but in your heart, how much scripture, how much truth about Christ do you have planted in there, treasured up, stored up in your heart so that you will not sin against God, Sanctif live a sanctified life. The Bible, as we talked about yesterday, uh, last week, is sufficient, inerrant, that means without error, and authoritative. You could trust the scriptures. This is God's word. There's a direct correlation there. Ephesians 5 talks about how, how Christ washes the bride with the word, right? So the Bible, scripture, truth, washes us to become more pure and holy like him, right? This is what Jesus is praying for. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10. There's a beautiful picture here. 1 Corinthians 10, I know we, many of us have heard that, uh, that scripture before about God protecting us from temptations we're not ready for. But let me give you a little bit of context of 1 Corinthians 10. This is a powerful, powerful chapter. I couldn't get my eyes off of 1 Corinthians 10 as I was drawn there. The context, this is talking about Paul rehashing the Israelites in the wilderness before they got into the promised land. All right, this is an absolutely chilling example of us not to be like. This is a chilling example of disqualified members. Millions 
Let me say that again. Millions of people were killed by God in the wilderness and not allowed into the promised land, rendered ineffective for his use. Millions of dead bodies and corpses lie in the wilderness before they could enter into the promised land. Why were they enter, to enter, occupy the promised land? It's to establish the kingdom of God and to evangelize that whole area. None of these men and women were allowed to come in except for two. Let me read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 5, and 6. Nevertheless, with most of them, that, that was a huge understanding, all but two, most of them, okay? Most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. What does that mean? They were killed. They, were, they died in the wilderness. Dead, rotting bodies in the, in the wilderness. Useless to the master. Now these things happen. Why? Look at this. This is such a sobering thing. Now these things happen as examples for us. For us to learn from bad examples how not to be. Okay? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. What? Why were they disqualified? Okay, that's the question. Why were they disqualified? As you go on through chapter 10 of Corinthians, it tells you why. Why were they rendered ineffective in the, in the world? The first four verses in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about how they were to experience God's goodness. Think about this now. This is very scary here. Think about this. This is very scary because think about the life of Judas. He experienced the goodness of Christ for three years. The Israelites experienced God's goodness in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is, but they, they loved the world. Not the people of the world, but the world system. They loved the world too much. And it chronicles down from uh, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Corinthians. One, they, were, they loved idolatry. They made other things greater than God. They loved their comfort too much. They love their uh, riches too much. They love certain foods too much. And in the San Gabriel Valley, what do we love? Do we love our families too much? Do we love our comfortable lifestyles too much? Do we fight for our reputation over holiness? Is that what we love too much? Do we love our money too much, our education too much, our sports too much? These are all good things. But if they are elevated and rival Christ as number one in our hearts, they become idols. Thousands were killed at that point. You can look in numbers. And then it talks about immorality. What is immorality? Let's talk about sexual immorality. These are the things I'm talking about that are going to render you useless to the master. These are the things that's going to render you and me ineffective in the world for the master. And hopefully won't end up like one of these corpses. Although our security may be secured, our usefulness is still in the balance, brothers and sisters. Understand that. Immorality, this is sexual nature. Is pornography gripping your hearts? That will render you useless. Your thought life will render you useless. I'm not acting. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just watching. Is this in your heart? Jesus says, even if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you're, a, you're guilty of adultery. Are you at the workplace flirting with the opposite sex? Rendering you ineffective in the workplace because of that. Homosexuality is an is a immoral thing, sexually immoral thing that will render you useless for the king. 
Fornication, having sex outside of marriage, will render you useless in the world. Okay? Next thing, in, in verse 10 here, he talks about grumbling or complaining. I mean, how many of us are like that? I'm guilty. I grumble. I grumble at times. All right, the Israelites were saying, hey, you know, why can't we have the leeks and, and the meat that we had in, in Egypt? They were grumbling. Did you, did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? They were grumbling. Lack of content, uh, contentment. But I just want to zero in on verse 9 of Corinthians 10. It talks about, nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did and were destroyed by, by the serpents. These fiery snakes came and poisonous snakes and killed thousands of Israelites in the wilderness. What does this mean? This means to test the Lord. Because hear what I just said now. Your security, eternal security is secured by the Father. We're not backing off that one second. However, are you someone that says, hey, I've been saved by grace. Pastor, can I talk to you about this? I know I'm saved. I, I, I know I'm saved by grace, but I, I like watching these R-rated movies. Pastor, is it okay? You know, my friends listen to these type of music where there's all kinds of curse words and all kinds of uh, things that are applying to my mind that aren't very helpful. Can I still listen to those things and be a Christian? I used to get some of these questions at times before becoming a pastor. How far can I push the envelope, right? That's the question. That is absolutely the wrong attitude. That's absolutely the wrong mindset. Absolutely wrong. The question that you should be asking is like, how do I pursue holiness? Does this help me? What I'm watching, what I'm listening to, is this helping me become more like Christ? That's the question. Is this encouraging other brothers and sisters to love Christ more? That's the question. So as Jesus is praying now, he's praying for our sanctification. This is exactly what he's praying for because going back to John 17, going back to John 17, verse 18, I'm going to read this first. There's a purpose why we're here. John 17, 18 says this, As you sent me into the world, the Father sent Jesus into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We're on mission. We need to be sanctified to be effective in the world. If we look like the world, smell like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, we're not very salty, guys. We need to be set apart, holy. Like, man, there's something about that woman that's different. There's something about that man that's different. Holiness, holiness. Sanctification allows you to be effective in the world. We want to be effective, useful tools in the master's hands. Loving the world too much renders you ineffective. We want to avoid that. What a warning at a, at a first uh, Corinthians 10. Dead bodies. We don't want any dead bodies here at Evergreen SGV. We want live, working, strong members of the body of Christ here. This is why we're here, to encourage one another. All right, let's move on. Point number three. Jesus is praying for our protection, number one. Jesus is praying for our sanctification, number two, to become more like Christ. And Jesus is praying for our unification. This is not an outward unity. Okay, like, but this is an inward one where we have, we share this common love. We love Christ. Remember Acts uh, chapter 2, our first sermon of the look to Christers, how they were of one mind, undistracted. No distraction for these, uh, for these brothers and sisters. They're all about Christ. And it was clear. 
There's no distractions. They still had family. They still had homes. They still had jobs. But there was no distraction. They were about loving Christ. They had a common love. And as I think back to our, our trip to, with uh, Coach Fisk, there were three of us that showed up there. Uh, two other coaches and me, a former player. I mean, you know, one, one coach is African-American guy. He, he's in his almost 60. Another brother, and all of us happened to be Christians, including the Fisks. It was a Caucasian man who was, I don't know, maybe in his 50s or something. And there's me. I'm in my 40s. I'm a Japanese guy, right? So what would bring us all together? We loved our coach. We loved our coach. We love our coach. He's, a, he's iconic in our lives. That's what would get us to jump on Southwest Airlines, wait in those lines, get on the plane, fly to Denver, and hang out, and, and, and drive another hour outside Denver to hang out with our coach. Because we love our coach. This is the inward unity that we're talking about in verse 21. And this is a greater thing to even love for a, another brother. It says, look at 21. This is just going to blow you away. Verse 21. That they may all be one, unified, even as, look, it compares it to the Trinity, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. The Father, the unity between the Father and the Son. And let's keep reading. That they also may be in us. Does that not wake you up? We get to be in that unity with the Trinity. Have you, did you ever imagine that we would be part of this? What? Look at 23. That second half of 23. At the end, it says, you, you sent me and loved them, talking about us, even as you have loved me. The Father loves us with the same type of love he has for the Son. How can you not have joy? I mean, what else do you need to know? Sermon's over. Let's go. I mean, that's all you need to know, right? The Father loves me like with the same type of love he loves the Son? It's too much, but there's a purpose in this. There's a purpose in this. Unification leads to a powerful witness. Look at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Bam. Let's, let's look at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me. Unification of the brothers at this, at this, with this Trinitarian type unity leads to an incredible witness. Incredible witness. All right, we got to land this plane here. Let's go to the fourth point here. Fourth point. Jesus is praying for our protection. Jesus is praying for our sanctification. <laughs> Jesus is praying for our unification. And now Jesus is praying for our glorification. Verse 24 might be the crown jewel of this whole chapter here. All right, just one verse. He's, Jesus is praying, Father, I desire, so this is what Jesus wants. This is his heart's desire. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, God the Father gives the church to Jesus as a love gift. What does he want? Be with me where I am. Jesus actually wants to be with us. How could this not, not make sense? He's the head, we're the body, we're connected. Of course, the head wants to be with the body. The husband wants to be with his bride. <laughs> John MacArthur writes What will make heaven so glorious for believers is not its gates of pearl, 
or streets of gold, but the presence of the Lamb. Their supreme joy will be to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, experiencing perfect, intimate, holy fellowship with him, uninterrupted, and all the saints forever back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus gets us back, and this is what he's praying for. And by the way, what has this got to do with glorification? Where are we at? Verse 24, second half, be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory which you have given me. Wow. We still contend that the Bible is the greatest picture of Christ on this side of eternity. You want to know Jesus? You read the Bible. This is the clearest picture we have. But it says it's like a mirror. As we're beholding in a mirror, 2 Corinthians 3 uh, says, it's like beholding a mirror as we stare at Christ's image, like as looking at a mirror. We are transferred from one level of glory to another. Back in this ancient times, 2,000 years ago, mirrors were made out of polished metal, like bronze. So it's not like the type of mirrors that we even have in our bathrooms. So it's kind of blurry. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of warped. You know, maybe something that we've seen like at Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you got those funny mirrors, right? So you, you, you have a good idea, but not the clearest idea. So the Bible says, this is just going to blow you away. When we see Christ, I'm just going to read it for us. It might be behind me. 1 John 3, 2. Uh, 1 John 3, 2 says this. Behold now, we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be, meaning we're not glorified yet. We know that when he appears, when we see him, we will, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Boom. Not only do we get to be with our Lord, we get to see him, and then we're transformed into a glorious state. No more sin. How many of us are dealing with physical ailments? No more physical ailments. No more relational hurts. No more temptation. No more battle between the spirit and the flesh. That's gone. We're going to be like Jesus, the one that we love. So it's finishing up here. Jesus' greatest ministry is his intercessory work. He's praying for these things. These things are, are guaranteed because he's praying for us. What did he say right before in John 16? Anything you pray in my name, the Father will do. Well, Jesus is like praying to himself, right? He's going to do what he's going to do. It's a guarantee. It's a lock. So why do I want to go through this look to Christ series? Why is this such a huge part? Does this not give you greater confidence in your salvation? Does this not give you greater confidence that we are called to grow in holiness, to be effective for him? Does this not grow in your confidence that we need to be unified in Christ as a church family here at Evergreen SUV? And does this give us greater hopefulness of what we're going to be like someday with him in eternity? This is too much. And like, I apologize. This is just the mountain peaks of John 17. You need to go through John 17 and mine out the treasures that are in there. This is just the mountain peaks. This is just the mountain peaks. But I hope that you have a clear picture of what Christ's prayer life is like for us. And I remember back in the day when I was playing, you know, some of the Christian athletes would have something called like WWJD that still might be happening. What would Jesus do? And that was kind of, a, kind of an encouragement as to say, what, you know, you want to live like Christ. If you want to be like Christ, you should be praying for people. 
That's why I love to pray over to the side. Whoever blesses me with the opportunity to intercede for them, I, I, I love it. This is what we're called to do. Pray for your family and friends. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your enemies who are persecuting, who are acting as agents of the world, that they will come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But now you know how to pray for the saints, though. Pray for protection. Pray for sanctification. Pray for unification. And thank Jesus for the glorification that's ahead of us someday. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to preach. You're praying life, Jesus. Jesus, you are constantly interceding for us, and we thank you for this. Thank you that you're praying for our eternal security. Thank you that you're praying for us to share in the unity of the Trinity. Thank you that you are praying for our, our sanctification. Thank you that you're praying for our future glorification. Thank you that you made us for perfect relationship, the type of perfect relationship you have with the Father. So Father, I want to bless your people here at Evergreen SGV. I pray, Lord, that we will be people who are effective in the world, who will pursue holiness in our thought life, in our private lives, in our public lives. We want to be holy because you are holy, Father. And I pray for greater unity in the body of Evergreen SGV. Bless us with greater unity. Galvanize in our common love for you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray that we will become more like you and we'll be a people who pray for others. We will intercede for others. Bless us with this heart. We want to be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.